Hey everybody, Father Justin Matthews, and welcome to the Social Leader Podcast. I have a special edition to bring to you today. Just recently, I was on St. Vladimir's Seminary Podcast, and SVS is my alma mater out of New York, where I got my Master's in Divinity. And on this podcast, I tell a little bit of my story, more from a church background of how I got to where I am, and some of the other places where I've served as an Orthodox Christian priest. And then we get full in onto conversation about reconciliation services, and Thelma's Kitchen and introducing the work that we do here at 31st and Troost in a little bit more detail. I wanted to make sure that you got to hear this. It was a really uh, big honor for me to be able to be interviewed by St. Vladimir's. And in addition to that, totally blown away. St. Vladimir's Seminary actually gave 10% of everything that they raised on Giving Tuesday to support our work at Reconciliation Services. So I was blown away. I was humbled. And I'm really proud to share this podcast with you now. I hope you enjoy. Well, I'm really grateful to be talking to you today. And and I'm a proud alum of St. Vladimir's. And when I became a priest, first a deacon and then a priest at the Three Hierarchs Chapel in 2006, uh, I had a strong feeling that I was called to continue now as clergy, the missionary work that I had been doing before as a layman, which had to do with um, caring for the poor and uh, addressing the racial and economic disinvestment uh, the racial inequities and economic disinvestment that are present within our communities, um, and to try to do all I could to further the gospel work and the, you know, the strong Orthodox Christian tradition of caring for the poor. When I left St. Vladimir's, I uh, was a second priest at a church in Tennessee, and then after that, I had the privilege of working with a group of people to co-found and served as the executive director of an organization called Focus North America. After that, I uh, moved back home to Kansas City and I became uh, the volunteer second priest with Hiram Monk Alexei Alshul, at the time Father Paisius and his wife, uh, Matushka Michaela or Thelma, and uh, began to labor with my family, my three boys and my wife, Marishka Jodi, here in the inner city of Kansas City. We bought a house on uh, the east side of Kansas City in a predominantly black neighborhood and uh, took up the work of learning and being neighbor and uh, learned a whole lot from Matishka Michaela and from Father Alexei. And uh, eventually when uh, Matishka Michaela of blessed memory when she passed away in 2013 father at that time father paisius now hiram monk alexi went on sabbatical he came back and then eventually he uh, was tonsured a monastic moved to mount athos and and then came back and established a monastery about an hour away from from kansas city and i had the privilege of being blessed by bishop longing to uh, be transferred first on loan and then eventually transferred underneath the Serbian Archdiocese, uh, Nukachanica and Mid-America under Bishop Longin, and then to become the, the priest at St. Mary of Egypt, Serbian Orthodox Church here at the corner of 31st and Troost in Kansas City, and also became the executive director of uh, a ministry called Reconciliation Services, which was founded by the Orthodox Christians in Kansas City, but now works um, with many, many, many organizations, the church as well as many others. 
uh, in Kansas City to cultivate a community that is seeking racial and economic reconciliation in order to transform Troost Avenue, which is our dividing line in Kansas City, from a, a dividing line into a gathering place in order to reveal the strength of all. Eventually, um, was able to uh, get a friend, uh, Turbo Qualls, to move from California with his family. And as we were growing both the church and reconciliation services, he served as a case manager at, at RS and then uh, became a deacon. And eventually last year in 2019, January, I asked a blessing to uh, have Father Turbo, who by then had become a priest, uh, to ask if he could become the senior priest at St. Mary's. And I dedicated myself full-time to running the nonprofit work called Reconciliation Services. And we've launched a number of social venture uh, programs and uh, ministries, which I could talk about. Um, but uh, I now serve as a priest where I'm needed, filling in. I'm still officially attached to St. Mary of Egypt, but I spend a lot of time at the monastery with Hiram Monk Alexi and with my family. I fill in at Serbian and Greek and OCA churches, uh, Antiochian churches across Kansas City when I'm needed so that some of the other priests can get a break every now and again. And um, that's, that's sort of where I am. I have uh, my wife uh, and I co-labor together full-time. She's our director of marketing engagement and marketing and engagement. And uh, I serve as the executive director. And then we have three boys who were all little bitty when we were at St. Vlad's. Um, mm -hmm. I think when we moved there, my oldest son, who's now 18, was two and a half, uh, maybe a little younger than that. And my uh, middle child, Asher John, um, Asher was just a brand new little guy, a little baby when we were there. And then in my very last month of my third year at St. Vlad's, uh, my wife gave birth to our third son, Hayden Innocent. And so they're, they're the love of my life. Three boys. I think eventually they'll like me again. They're teenagers. But <laughs> we, <laughs> we, I've just so enjoyed being with them and co-laboring with my family in the inner city and also working in the suburbs. And so we've gone back and forth. And so mm -hmm. that's sort of the, maybe the long version of my story. I don't know, but. Thank you, Father. No, that's great. I'd like to find out a little bit more about reconciliation services too, but before, before I ask you about that, tell us, paint the context for us. What, what is the significance of truce? Um, how was it a dividing line and how did that history, the history there shape the community and the things that you're addressing now with, with RS? Sure. Kansas City, like almost every community in the United States, has a racial and an economic dividing line that was engineered by our forefathers through um, racist policies and economic decisions, both locally and federally. So in Kansas City, Troost Avenue, uh, the black community was legally not allowed to live um, west of Troost Avenue, which is a north-south street. They were not allowed to live west of Troost Avenue, and they were not allowed to live south of 31st Street. So you had uh, 
part of our community that even one of my uh, good friends and a former staff member, Darren, he's about 10 years older than me. He remembers moving with his family to Kansas City and his dad telling him, hey, buddy, we actually aren't allowed to live anywhere else. This is where we've got to be. And so what happens starting with things like Brown v. Board in Topeka is you've got um, the white community trying to figure out how can they segregate while legally not being able to segregate. The two communities didn't want to be together. So whereas there were Greek Orthodox churches and Jewish synagogues and you know, even my grandparents and great-grandparents lived on the east side of Kansas City, eventually after Brown, B, Brown v. Board, um, there began a process of white flight and white families began to move out of the inner city into the newly created suburbs after World War II. And those suburbs had what are called racially restrictive covenants. In fact, racially restrictive covenants were pioneered in part by a man named J.C. Nichols, who had the J.C. Nichols Realty Company. And he was the first president of the National Realtors Board. So after he developed these racially restrictive covenants for his developments, that methodology of segregation now between neighbors rather than at a um, kind of at a funding level or at a state level, that method of segregation then was propagated all over the country and others followed and even made it worse. But in those racially restrictive covenants, what they said was that you could only sell your house to another white person. So if you were Jewish, in some cases Italian, Syrian, certainly black, you were not allowed to buy that house. Now here's the crazy thing. Even though by the 2000s, the practice of enforcing those uh, restrictive covenants in places around Kansas City and around the US, even though that had fallen out of practice, they were actually still on the neighborhood bylaws. It took an act of the governor in the state of Kansas to force uh, folks to remember that they were there and to strike them from the neighborhood bylaws. But it was through a process of uh, white flight that was uh, encouraged at the federal level by um, what's called redlining, which is um, the national banking system began to literally redline neighborhoods that were not considered to be good for economic investment. And so, of course, what were all those redlined areas? They were all the black communities in every city across the United States. Mm -hmm. So you have an economic disinvestment of whole swaths of the city all across the U.S. From there, you have what's called blockbusting which is you had white realtors going into those um, communities that were on the edge of those redline communities and saying, hey, look, I don't mean to scare you, but there's a black family that just bought a house down the street. Your property value is going to tank. Hey, but don't fear. <laughs> J.C. Nichols and others have built these wonderful suburbs and uh, you can go out there and feel safe. And so they would use scare tactics that are now, again, illegal um, because they're discriminatory to begin to get white families to move. But again, that was not only racially motivated, but it was economic greed. There was a lot of money made through blockbusting and white flight. So, so you're saying, um, Father, that actually the person who pioneered this approach came out of Kansas City. 
He was one of the main uh, architects of this approach, J.C. Nichols. There were others doing similar things across the United States, but his work with the uh, National Realtors Board um, really spread this methodology of segregation across the United States quickly. Interesting. So your truce, truce becomes almost a template or a metaphor for the rest of the U.S. due to the significance of his role with the Realtors Board. That's right. And so every city in the United States has a truce. Every city in the United States that I've ever seen has a black section of town that's considered poor, that's considered crime-ridden. It's usually in the urban core. Uh, there are rural areas also. But those didn't just happen. And it certainly isn't a product of some kind of defective culture or um, deficiency in the African-American character or community, which are all things that were said by Christians and by others to try to justify um, racializing uh, poverty and, and segregation. But um, the, the reality is that if we're going to address poverty in our communities today, hunger, lack of educational opportunities, lack of living wage job opportunities, if we're going to address the, the structural issues that face many thousands of members of our communities, we have to actually name the right problem. We have to name the fact that it was racism and economic disinvestment supported by local, state, and federal policy, as well as greed, that created the economic conditions for concentrated poverty that we now see in these neighborhoods where people are struggling to survive and succeed. Mm -hmm. So if we don't address the right problem, we can come up with solutions. Maybe they're even good solutions to solve things like hunger, but we never actually solve the problem. And Dr. King said from a Birmingham jail in 63 to the white moderate clergy that he was supposedly, you know, trying to work with, you know, he wrote from jail, he said, surely the most astute um, social analyst of our time knows that we want to do more than just, you know, look at the problems on the surface. But he said, we need to, quote, grapple with the underlying root causes. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know anything more true to the gospel than not just looking at the surface issues societal issues in our country, but actually being willing to do the hard heart work of confessing our sins and even beginning to repent for the sins of our forefathers. And by that, I mean in a scriptural sense and in a traditional sense and begin to, to look at the root cause. And so, you know, we can address the blight of buildings in poor neighborhoods all day long. But until we address the blight of the heart that created the conditions of poverty in the first place, then all we're doing is moving poor people mm -hmm. and making buildings look pretty. It's like lipstick on a pig. And that's what, uh, so that, that moves me to reconciliation services. So, with that as the context, then 
what kinds of things are you doing that that is not just lipstick on a pig i mean what what is what do you feel like are the most important things that your uh ministry is uh actually doing you know in sure. your Sure. So reconciliation services, um, after a year long listening session with our neighbors, with board members, with partnering organizations and ministries and our staff and our board, we uh, wrote an intentional, detailed theory of change that clearly defined the problem rooted in racial discrimination and economic disinvestment. That is the root problem of poverty in our city, uh, in the community that we're serving. And once we established that that's the problem, we set about creating a theory of change that would lead ultimately to three things. Number one, we want everyone who engages with us, whether they're a client guest or a partner guest, and I'll define those in a minute, but we want everyone who engages with us to number one, increase their personal well-being. And we measure that state of well-being along 11 measures benchmarked against the World Health Organization, but also including a spiritual measure that we add. We want them to increase their personal well-being. We want them to uh, begin to uh, become advocates for their own families and community. This idea that we're not going to do for you, but we're going to walk with you. That every single person, because they're made in the image of God, has hidden strength waiting to be revealed. And then the third thing that we're wanting after they become advocates is for them to reveal that strength. So we look at reconciliation services as a scaffolding, not as a permanent foundation. A scaffolding around a community that certainly is struggling to survive and succeed, but is invested by God with, you know, undeniable inherent dignity and worth, profound and authentic, worthy of profound and authentic respect and dignity. So that's our overarching kind of mission, right? So mm -hmm. the way that we live that out has two sides. Imagine a a circle divided in half. And on the one side, you have our client guests. And our client guests are anyone who needs services. And then our partner guests on the other side are not necessarily wealthy white people or people in the suburbs. It's anyone, uh, black, white, rich, poor, east, west, who isn't a client, but who wants to contribute to the healing of the community. So by developing a theory of change that's kind of at the meta level shaped like that, what we're trying to do is to address the root problem, to bake equity, diversity, and inclusion into the cake and not just have diversity and charity sprinkles on the top. So on the client guest side, we offer social services, trauma therapy services, and economic community building opportunities. So here's what that looks like. Um, social services, we offer affordable access to healthy food. We offer, um, we're the largest provider of IDs, birth certificates, and necessary work papers, like restaurant permits. Um, we're the largest provider of IDs in the state of Missouri, wow. according to the Secretary of State. Over 1,500 people come to us every year just for their ID. Wow. We 
We provide um, rent and utilities assistance. We provide advocacy for those who need it. So our case managers um, interface with 5,300 unduplicated client guests a year to provide those social services. And in the aggregate, we're delivering over a million dollars of direct client services every single year to those neighbors. Um, our neighbors, 99% uh, of them live below the federal poverty line, which means that you've got a family of four living on $25,000 or less. Mm. 82% 80, of the children in our community live in single parent homes. That has a lot to do with the incarceration rate and the so-called war on drugs. Um, you've got a lot of people who are homeless. We are not, um, primarily like a rescue mission or a homeless agency. We work a lot with people who I would say are transitionally homeless, but our work is to try to work with those folks who are chained to the first rung of the economic ladder. They're in danger of slipping off. They're in danger of homelessness. They may be homeless, but they, they, there's no reason that they can't uh, move forward. Whereas a Whereas a ministry that's particularly addressing chronic inebriate homelessness is kind of a whole different thing. We're working a lot with the working poor, with people being evicted, and in particular right now in light of COVID-19, I mean, there is a tidal wave of eviction happening. Um, and so, you know, we are, we are spending a lot of time and effort to get people IDs so they can constitute their identity, so that they can vote, so that they can get a job, so that they can get adequate health care for themselves and their children, trying to get them birth certificates for their kids. And, and there's this nasty catch-22 that if you don't have an ID, you can't get a birth certificate. But without a birth certificate, you can't get an ID. So oftentimes... I struggle with the DMV and the bureaucracy of, you know, our government agencies that provide things like social services. Can you imagine being a single mom working two minimum wage part-time jobs, about to lose your house? Maybe you just lost your apartment. You're living with a friend. Maybe you do or you don't really understand the, the complex um, government, you know, DMV system. I hate the DMV and I'm have a master's degree, you know, like people need help. They don't need somebody to do it for them, but they need help. And that's the kind of thing our, our case managers do from there. Once we build relationship in Thelma's kitchen, then we build trust by entering into someone who's in crisis, helping them get to the next step. Then we're afforded the privilege very often of working on those deep heart issues in what we call our reveal trauma therapy program. And the reveal therapy program, I call it a stealth mental health program. And what we've developed is a mental health program that is specifically enculturated for African American men and women. So most of our therapists and case managers are not white. Um, and that therapy program is, um, clinical and evidence-based. It is a professional cutting edge trauma therapy service like you would get for your kids, but we're offering it sponsored by donors and by other sources of funding for free to our neighbors. Look, the rates of trauma and PTSD in the urban neighborhoods in the United States that are 
crippled under gun violence and you know, debilitating social issues, the rates of PTSD and trauma in those communities approach that of veterans returning home from war. It is a war zone. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So look, you know, you can you can get a guy an ID, you can, you know, teach him how to fish, you can build him a pond and a cabin by the lake and stock the lake. But if in the morning after you're gone, he's too depressed or he's suffering or she's suffering with trauma and mental illness um, that they cannot handle, you have wasted all of that effort. We have to address the crisis of mental health in our country. We are over-policed and we are struggling to prioritize funding for the one thing that people really need. Over 90% of people who are low income, who are interfacing with healthcare systems in the United States, suffer from it, have, have experienced at least one significantly traumatic event in their life from which they're, they're suffering from mental health. So anyway, th- those are the kind of things that we're doing. And then lastly, and I, I won't belabor this point, although it may be the most important, but one of the most important, but we consider ourselves a social venture. So we're striving to harness the best of business, faith, and philanthropy to do social good in order to reveal the strength of our community. So rather than just fundraising all the time, which you being in the fundraising world know how tiresome <laughs> that is, um, we are striving to create businesses, earned income revenue strategies, one of which is called Thelma's Kitchen, and it's been wildly successful. We're the first donate what you can restaurant in Kansas City, and we just launched uh, Thelma's Kitchen Box Lunch. So we're competing with Panera and Jersey Subs and all those things. So I call it slacktivism. You, it's kind of like slacker activist, right? So every time you buy a box lunch, the proceeds from that fuel the social trauma therapy and economic community building work that we're doing at Reconciliation Services. But also people who, uh, one out of eight people in Jackson County where we're located, one out of eight people are nutritionally insecure. Like they might have food, but it's not good food. Or they might not have adequate food access. So we're about the furthest thing from a soup kitchen that you can imagine. We are a restaurant, but we, um, we allow our neighbors to offer what they can. There's a $3 minimum and they donate what they can. $3 is the cost of our food for each of the lunches, roughly. But we invite them into relationship and radical participation. And then we invite them to donate as much as they can to pay it forward for other people that don't have anything to donate that day. Mm-hmm. So by, by doing this, we actually have become a five-star Yelp rated restaurant on Truce <laughs> Avenue. It's pretty oh, cool. That is really amazing. When you explain all that, I can see why you're called reconciliation services. It's a, that, that, that's a very strong word and it says a lot. Um, just in that one word in terms of what your approach is and what you're attempting to do. Um, and, and actually, Father, as you were talking, I was thinking about the parish, St. Mary of Egypt. From what I can see online, it's there right in the midst of your work, right? Um, in the same location or? We were in the same location since our inception, really in the early 90s. It's evolved over time, but 
Um, Reconciliation Services actually was just able to purchase this building at 31st and Troost, and that allowed St. Mary's to move further east into the Black community and into the poor community to buy literally like a half a block and an old church to renovate that church and to um, grow its mission. And so the two are separate legally, and they have different missions, but there is a common gospel intent. So reconciliation services is like the tip of the spear, and the church is like, you know, the shaft of the spear. Um, they, they're different, but they have a common purpose. Can you see this being a template for ministry with other parishes and other communities? Is the, the kind of the hand-in-hand -hand work that you do with the work of the, the parish and the life of the parish in healing wounds and divisions that exist? I can. Um, it's very difficult. Um, I attempted with a group of others to do that through Focus North America, and there's a lot of work to be done. Um, the, the fact is, is that we have a lot of internal mission work to do as well. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of people suffering in our own parishes, and we, we kind of need to move in concentric circles. But where we have the strength, there's certainly a lot that we can be doing. We, I mean, we're a $3 million a year organization and I have, you know, 30 staff. Um, I have a particular background and gifting in executive leadership that, and, and a passion and 23 years of experience of doing this kind of work. So I, I don't think that every priest or every lay person in a parish can just take up this work and do it. No more than I can do what they do. You know, there are incredible pastors out there that dance circles around me, you know, in their, in their, uh, in their ministry. Um, you know, everyone has a different gifting and we need all of it. I do think, though, that the church ought to be strongly engaged in the marketplace of ideas, that we ought to be allowed to fail. We ought to be creative. We ought to be engaging ecumenically with other organizations and ministries that are doing this work and have been doing it in the United States for mm -hmm. generations longer than we have. Mm -hmm. And they know, they know more than we do about the people and the issues. Like we might have a fullness of theology and sacramental life, but they know the people and we don't. Most of the times we've moved out of those poor neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times our churches were actually caught up in the white flight. We moved from the cities to the suburbs. We left. Um, and so I think that we have a lot of opportunity to grow. And any step, I remember Dr. Rossi saying to me, uh, or saying to us in class, he said, any step towards sobriety and any step towards sanity that someone can take is a step towards the only person who's ever been sober and sane, and that's Jesus Christ. Oh, so, that is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Father, Dr. Rossi is a uh, really a strong teacher. Um, you know, I feel like there's things that we need to do in the Orthodox Church to be ready, to be prepared, to be taught, to go out and to do this work. 
you know, I had the privilege of spending a decade and a half prior to becoming a priest, learning from folks who do this kind of work, and they helped to prepare me. St. Vladimir's gave me the theological grounding. And, and what's more than that? St. Vladimir's gave me a more holistic and broad view of the Orthodox Christian Church. We are too quick, in my opinion, to, to latch on to like a hyperdox siege mentality that seems to be so gaining traction in this day and age. And when we do that, we risk losing the, the love of the gospel, the mercy of the gospel, the forgiveness of the gospel that is modeled by the saints. And our view of the church becomes too narrow. Truncated. You, yeah, truncated and narrow. If you look at the church in the United States, I was able to get a glimpse of that at St. Vladimir's. You know, I got a glimpse at the theological breadth and depth of the church. I was grounded in the kind of you know, so-called phronema of the church and the fathers as much as I could be in my sinful state with two kids and one on the way, you know, but like, mm. um, you know, I, I really feel like St. Vlad's enabled me to get a broad view of orthodoxy in America. And I was introduced to modern saints, as well as church mothers and fathers that were already doing this work for centuries, you know? Mm -hmm. And we can look to them. We can look to St. Basil the Great. We can look to St. John of Kronstadt. We can look to Mother Maria of Paris. We can look to Matushka Olga and others and see the diversity of talents, of people, of ways of living the Orthodox ministry, Christian life. Of ministry, right. The diversity of ministry that right. everyone's, everyone is so different uh, in their calling and, and what God right. has for them to do in their life's work, you know. Right. But we actually have to do some hard work, though, too, of addressing, you know, being brave and fearless and addressing things within our church. You know, some of our Orthodox church context, which is theologically grounded and traditional, also can be taken the wrong way. We can have tendencies towards nationalism while trying to, you know, live the faith of our forefathers. We can have tendencies towards, you know, um, an inappropriate, like, patriarchal gender bias against women. We can have, you know, um, a xenophobia that pushes people of color away and makes it hard for them to discover the Orthodox Church. I mean, these are things that before we rush out to go feed a million people, like we need to be working on those things. And I put myself in that category. I have done a lot of work in the areas of diversity, equity and inclusion, bias and other things that to me, line up directly with the gospel, but I am still learning. I am still trying to listen and to hear the lived experience of my neighbors who have suffered greatly and continue to suffer from all backgrounds.